From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. Welcome back to the CQ Budget Podcast. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. Lawmakers are now home campaigning for re-election, but they bought themselves some extra time for appropriations by finally passing a stopgap funding measure to extend current funding levels into mid-December with a chaotic close to the September session. And joining me to talk about all of it is Peter Cohn, the tax and budget editor at CQ Roll Call. Thanks again for being here, Pete. Good morning, David. Thanks for having me. So it's always kind of a a surprise to me how much of a struggle it is to get these simple stopgap continuing resolutions across the finish line. And, and this was no exception. It went dragged on to the very last day they had under the deadline to get this done. There's, there always seems to be some big thing holding it up. Um, this year, of course, it was the it was Joe Manchin's effort to streamline permitting for energy projects. You can never quite predict what'll get attached to these things that hold it up. Uh, and they finally caved on that, and and that sort of cleared the way for this for this bill to get through. But it still wasn't easy, and it it cleared the Senate, they cleared the House on Friday in their scramble to rush home on on pretty much a party line vote. Even even these simple stop gaps have become these these polarizing measures, never mind that you don't have you don't have regular appropriations yet. Yeah, well, I mean, keep in mind that this is the last piece of legislation that's going to move before the elections. So anytime you have, this is a must-pass bill. If you don't pass it, federal agencies have to start winding down their operations within a day or two. So, um, you know, that means furloughs for thousands of, of workers, you know, in a time when we're likely headed, well, potentially headed for a recession. So none of that would be good, and both sides recognize that. So the question is, everybody knows it's going to pass. So it's everybody's jockeying for for advantage at the la- right up until the deadline, right? So it's 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 it becomes a question of what can what can we add to the bill and still pass it and still get sixty votes in the Senate and two eighteen in the House. And so this happens every time. And so you know, a couple of years ago, they were arguing over. Uh, you know, the Trump administration wanted to put more money, wanted to uh, pay off farmers because of the. Uh, the pressure they were taking on prices from the uh, uh, Chinese import embargo, right? And, uh, and things like that. And so the Democrats said, well, if you're going to get that for, for farmers who are going to vote for you for reelection, we need to get money for nutrition programs in the CR. So you see what I mean? It's just these kinds of things always, always happen and they always dra- drag the deadline right up until the last minute. Because why not? If you, can, if you have time to try to, to you know, jam something into a must-pass bill, why wouldn't you take that opportunity, <laughs> right? So that, you know, that's where we are. And actually this one, we had several during the Trump administration where they passed, you know, late at night or went even even over the deadline. Of course, we had a 35-day government shutdown during the Trump administration too. But we had bills, Trump was signing them at, you know, 1 a.m., uh, you know, even after the technical deadline passed. So this one was actually fairly orderly, if you think about it. <laughs> So I guess we should be grateful that they finished like during normal work hours. A- apart from just continuing the the current funding levels, they did they did put in some emergency spending, and there was broad bipartisan support for including an extra twelve billion dollars for Ukraine. That seemed non controversial, and we're going to see I think 
continued requests for more Ukraine funding in coming months. But missing from this package was this was this effort to provide more money for the COVID-19 pandemic uh, or monkeypox. And healthcare spending seems to be a partisan divide now where Republicans just don't see the need for more money. They, they think they can just tap unspent money from previous pandemic laws. And so this we're still going to see a battle over this in coming months, it sounds like. Yeah, there was always a strong likelihood that there was going to be some kind of an emergency funding package attached to this bill. It's it's almost that's almost become a pattern too. Yeah, last year there was a big a big uh, disaster aid package and some other things that were attached to the CR they needed to pass uh, at the end of of uh, last September. So uh, obviously, with the Ukraine conflict grinding on and uh, you know a lot of concern about what what Putin's going to do next, um, and with the uh, the the obviously the devastating hurricanes in Puerto Rico and Florida over the last couple of days, there was always a strong likelihood that there was going to be additional money. Now, you don't even, the CR automatically unlocks about $19 billion for FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency. So that was a big driving force in, in getting this, getting bipartisan support for this bill as well. Although, of course, the Florida senators uh, <laughs> either voted no or, or were absent from the vote. But, you know, there are a lot of other things in the bill that a lot of conservatives didn't like. So it's one of those things where, you know, you're able to vote no, but hope yes. That's kind of the slogan. So, you know, the, it got done and and uh, people who didn't, there were things in it they didn't like got to vote against it because there were plenty of other people to vote for it. I guess what we still don't know, Pete, is, you know, the Florida senators have already asked for a supplemental funding bill for hurricane relief, even though, as you as you point out, this pumps a lot more money into the disaster relief fund. So they're sitting on a good pile of cash right now in that fund, but we still don't really know what the damage assessment is going to show in Florida and whether, whether they will in fact need supplemental funding. It's, 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 I mean, some of these towns were completely wiped out. It sounds like it's conceivable that a supplemental bill could still be needed. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question about it. There's going to be a pretty, high price tag associated with, with rebuilding uh, after these storms. And so we'll probably see that in the lame duck, uh, whether it's standalone or part of the omnibus spending bill remains to be seen. But FEMA's got about $35 billion now, which is going to take care of most of the immediate needs as a result of these storms and, and some other things they, ha- they uh, were already obligated to do. But um, you know, FEMA's, FEMA's for immediate needs. And you know, the longer term rebuilding you know, getting people's houses rebuilt, getting roads fixed, things like that. All the, the, any government facilities that were damaged, whether it's, you know, Department of Defense or NASA, things like that, uh, money to compensate agricultural producers, crop producers for, for lost, uh, for all, everything they lost. You know, these things have Army Corps of Engineers, you know, uh, obviously helping them to mitigate future disasters like this and rebuild the, um, you know, things that broke this time. Um, there's going to be a, you know, this, this happens every time. And so they'll come back in the lame duck and maybe even into next year, there'll be a need for more. Uh, we'll see what the Republican appetite is then, but you know, you certainly, as we just discussed, there's certainly support on the Republican side of the aisle from some pretty conservative guys to pump more money into this rebuilding effort. And there was already some, some criticism I heard over the weekend of, you know, some of the political posturing where Democrats say, how come 
you know, you Republicans, some of you Republicans voted against Superstorm Sandy money, and now you're coming to us wanting Florida money. Isn't that hypocritical? There already there's already some of that backbiting going on. I suspect, you know, they won't come back till after the elections. The the political pressures will simmer, the lower, and um, there would be bipartisan support for an emergency package, assuming they can document the need and and based on what the damage assessments show. Yeah, look, I mean, this is a very familiar pattern here. I mean, Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz from Texas was kind of the, you know, the face of the opposition to uh, Hurricane Sandy relief way back in 2012, 2013. And, you know, four years later, when Hurricane Harvey just demolished Houston, Senator Ted Cruz is one of the people advocating for relief. So, um, you know, this happens all the time. It's, it's, there's, if there's a disaster in another part of the country that seems remote to you and you don't like government spending, you're going to complain about it. But then when it hits home, you're going to see the, uh, you know, how important it is. Right. That, that's what happened with, with Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor over the weekend where he was, they were, he was being criticized for having voted against the Superstorm Sandy money, and he said there was too much pork in that, but he, he supports the general concept of emergency relief and wasn't, see, wasn't seeking for it to be offset. He just didn't want pork projects in there or yeah. what he viewed as pork projects. So he was trying to defend himself from that, even as he prepares now to have to request uh, probably a lot more money out of the feds. Yeah, David, you know, like as you and I both know, there's a long history of people being for something before they're against it or vice versa. And there's one word that, to explain that, and it's called politics. And so there's no, there's no surprise. And, uh, and it, there's a long, illustrious history of people yeah. on, both, on both sides of the aisle being for something before they're against it or, uh, or vice versa. So that's where we are. Let's just look ahead a minute, Pete, to what, what we're facing in December Obviously, this CR money ties them ties them over to mid December when they're expecting to pass a final package for the for the upcoming this new fiscal year that just began on Saturday uh, in in one big omnibus package. Um, same fight as last year over how much for defense spending versus non defense. It's going to be that same that same battle it looks like and and i noticed that the richard shelby the top senate appropriator republican just said that this year uh, there there's this republican push for so-called parity equal increases in defense and non-defense spending may not even be good enough anymore he's saying there needs to be more for defense than non-defense so we're seeing the, them raise the stakes here um for this for the next next showdown yeah i think Look at look what happened last year. That's a very good model for what's going to happen this time around. They ended up with uh, everyone said, you know, the, the National Defense Authorization Act, the the policy bill that kind of becomes a framework for what they uh, what they eventually do on uh, appropriations. That was much higher than what the Democrats in in, uh, in the House wanted to see, and what the Biden administration wanted to see on defense spending. So uh, they ended up going actually even higher than the NDAA authorized levels in the end, partly thanks to, to people like Richard Shelby, who are really pushing to get that number up. So um, Shelby's on his way out. He's retiring at the end of this year. I have no doubt that, you know, somebody told me a long time ago when <laughs> I was at, at another, uh, another uh, uh, publication that Richard Shelby usually gets what he wants. 
And, you know, this is, that was a long time ago and, uh, he's still there. He's on his way out the door, but he probably will once again, get get what he wants. And he does, he does want an omnibus deal as opposed to pushing it, punting it into the new year. Yeah. Half the, half the Senate Republicans want to get this done. And so that's enough. That's, that, that's enough to get you over the hump, the 60 votes. So, and you know, again, I think there's a lot of hope. Yes. Vote no people on the house Republican side who want to get this out of the way. They want to get their earmarks. Uh, in the final bill, and uh, because we don't know what's going to happen with earmarks next year if the if the house flips, so there's a lot of people who want to get this done. They just would like to vote against it because it is politically expedient for them to be able to vote against it. Um, so I, th- you know, you're you're going to see with defense and non-defense, we're going to see basically a repeat of what happened last year. They're going to get you know those numbers are going to move a lot closer to each other than they are currently in the house bills. Uh, and even in the Senate bills, they're, they're, they're not quite where the Republicans want to see them. But I think, you know, that what we really saw um, emerge on the House floor during that debate on Friday was border issues are really going to be going to kind of come up in the uh, I mean, they came up during this debate in immigration policies. But, uh, you know, again, they were able to kind of massage those. But that's going to come up again in the, in the omnibus talks. Um, you know, they had $1.8 billion for the uh, Office of Refugee Resettlement at HHS, which um, basically takes care of the of people who are awaiting processing who've come over the border. Um, you know, food, shelter, medical care, and, and, and things like that. And uh, I mean, this is one of the things Republican, House Republicans at least highlighted, which is that, look, we got a, a time we've got this unprecedented influx of people coming over the border. We're not doing anything about that, but instead we're just shelling out money to, you know, to help take care of them. And that was their, that was one of their key arguments for voting against this continuing resolution was that little provision on on the yeah. There's there's this sense that that you know Democratic on the Republican side, the Democratic policies are sort of exacerbating some of these problems, whether it's inflation with things that passed in the uh, in the in the uh, what they call the Inflation Reduction Act, because you know there's a lot of benefits going out the door. And um, Republicans don't like throwing money at people basically to paper over issues like that. So they, you know, they voted, they don't like the fact that the CR gave a billion dollars to LIHEAP, Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program, because they said, look, you know, heating bills are going up partly because now this may or may not be true, but the argument is Democrats passed a new tax, a new fee on methane emissions. In the, in the Reconciliation Act at a time when natural gas prices are already rising, you know, pretty substantially. So there's a sense that like, look, we're, we're making problems worse on, you know, the democratic policy. This is a Republican point of view. I'm just saying Democrats are making some of these issues worse. And then they're just trying to throw money at it to paper it over. So whether it's with inflation, whether it's with immigration, things like that, that's kind of a theme that emerged in this debate and it, it had been emerging for some time. And we're going to see that with some of these add-ons that they that they want to uh, put into the omnibus in, in December as well. Okay. And the other thing they did, Pete, before before leaving for this recess, kind of hit by surprise, really, was this last-minute legislation designed to help families of the September 11 terrorist attacks. Sort of came out of the blue, but the House rushed through this this bill much to the consternation of, of most Republicans who said they had, hadn't been consulted and were just kind of sideswiped by it. 
Yeah, except they all voted for it anyway. <laughs> they then it passed overwhelmingly, I was going to say, with like 400 votes in the House, which is a rare occurrence. And it's kind of complicated, but this is this would provide maybe up to $3 billion of, of additional payments for for spouses and children of, of 9-11 families um, out of this out of a fund that was never supposed to be for 9-11 families. It's, it's, it's this complicated ordeal where they created this fund for state-sponsored terrorism. This was a fund really designed to help the people held hostage by Iran back in the 70s and other victims of state-sponsored terrorism. And what you, what you had a few years ago, all of a sudden, the 9-11 families got access to this fund, even though they had their own fund. And so there's been this <laughs> there's been this incredible headache now that, that really goes unseen by the public, but there's actually a tug of war between families of Iran, Iran hostages and families of 9-11 now competing for this fund of state-sponsored terrorism because there's not really enough money in there to pay everyone now. Um, yeah, and so the, Congress you know, tried the, to address this with an additional payment. Yeah, David. You know, this isn't didn't come. You said this came out of the blue, but no, it didn't. As you as you later pointed out, this didn't come out of the blue. In fact, I mean, you wrote a great article about this a couple of years ago when it, when it was first kind of becoming an issue, and it was very much under the radar at the time. And as we saw, it just kind of burst out into the open over the last couple of days, right? I mean, well, that's what it, I mean is that yeah, it's basically. Yeah, I know what you're saying, but what I'm saying is this has been building for a long time, and. Right. Uh, and, you know, it was very interesting. We still haven't really gotten much of an explanation as to why. I mean, maybe it was because they couldn't pass the Stock Act, you know, the, the insider trading uh, ban for lawmakers and, and their spouses. So they, they kind of needed something. They needed to go out with a, with some kind of a win before the recess. And so, um, you know, that's maybe w- what happened there. But, I mean, the whole thing was just fascinating how this bill came up. And it's also interesting that they chose to put this one out there instead of backfilling the World Trade Center Health Fund, which has been where a lot of the public pressure, I'd say more public pressure has been on Congress to try to to fix that. Otherwise, that's going to stop being able to accept new recipients, I think, in what, late 2024. Now, you could argue that that's got more of a, uh, a runway before Congress has to deal with that. But that one, yeah, that one is facing a shortfall. I mean, that has to do with paying medical claims for people suffering the health effects when the Twin Towers collapsed in New York. Right. Which, which you could, you know, and so I don't know, maybe, maybe again, maybe it's the, the P word, the, the word politics, because you had a lot of Republican supporters pushing for action on that bill as well. And I, I don't know. I mean, the cost is the same. It's both, they're both $3 billion. And um, they used an offset in this in the 9/11 compensation bill, which is separate again from the from the World Trade Center health funding bill. They used an offset that now they're not going to be able to use when they get to the health funding issue, which and Nancy Pelosi said they want to take that up in the lame duck uh, as well. So, who I, I don't know. The interesting thing to me, Pete, on this is is 9/11 families can now tap a fund that wasn't designed for them based on what most people consider to be a pretty bogus court ruling that Iran was somehow responsible for 9-11. And that's how they drew the connection between a state-sponsored fund and the 9-11 horror. I think everybody should read your article from, I'm going to, I think uh, after this uh, podcast post, we'll put a link to in the, in the uh, newsletter that uh, we linked to the podcast and we're going to put a link to David's article. From, I think everybody 
All listeners of the CQ Budget Podcast should go back and read that article from January 2020, which lays it out in detail, which is the fact that there was this court ruling that opened the door to a fund that was for victims of state-sponsored terrorism, like the hostages in Iran. They said, hey, all all of a sudden Iran is is liable for 9-11 as well. So it got the 9-11 families, family members that weren't able to to get compensated the first time in the first compensation fund after 9-11, because there were some rules against parents and siblings and things like that. So all the parents and siblings rush in, and then all of a sudden there's not enough money left in this fund. And the fund's supposed to be financed by fines and penalties on sanctions violators, and there aren't and there haven't been enough sanctions violations. So all of a sudden they need money. And so you've got people like um, Thomas Massey, Republican from Kentucky, and other critics of this bill who are saying, well, look, a lot, you know, people a lot of people think Saudi Arabia was liable for 9-11. Why don't we add them to the list? And we can get a, billions of dollars more from uh, you know, sanctions violators doing from doing business with Saudi Arabia. So it's a fascinating, and then of course the, the whole political aspect of it with the lead sponsor of this bill, Nicole Maliotakis from Staten Island, from New York, uh, who flipped the Democratic district in twenty in twenty twenty. Uh, she's a Republican, yes, and she's running against the same guy this year. She was the lead sponsor of that bill, and um, Jerry Nadler, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, wasn't even a, a sponsor of that bill. He he just comes out, introduces his own version of it. It's literally the identical language, other than he included a pay for in it, which, you know, which is great. You know, they needed, they needed to pay for, um, but Jerry Nadler includes a pay for, and then all of a sudden it's Jerry Nadler's bill and he's the lead sponsor of it and he's managing it on the floor. I mean, he would have anyway, cause he's chairman of judiciary, but the so power he, of being in the majority, the I guess power he's, of, of a Democrat and he, being he a chairman over. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the Republican doesn't get as much credit who's in a tough race, but, you know, then she had this great line on the floor, Maliotakis. So she said, look, I'm going to just invoke Harry Truman here, where it doesn't matter who gets the credit as long as something good, you know, happens at the end. So it was a great, it was just a really kind of unsung story at the end of last week. And David, you know, my hat's off to you for really kind of shining a light on this a couple of years ago when this first emerged. Well, yeah, every, time, it's, it's a fascinating case because this this judge tried to claim that Iran is responsible for 9-11. And what was striking to me in talking to lawmakers, Pete, is almost nobody believes that. And they won't comment, they won't endorse the court ruling, but they just sort of accept it as fact and then proceed to craft this law, which gives 9-11 families access to this fund for Iran hostages. It's the most twisted, perverse thing that to put more financial pressure on a fund that was never supposed to serve 9-11 because the 9-11 folks had their own fund. Now they're coming into this state-sponsored fund, and it's created a lot more problems and a lot more headaches than I think lawmakers anticipated, as we just saw last week with the need to shore it up yet again with additional money. So, um, And yet, at the same time, lawmakers can't vote against it because it, it looks like you're coming out against 9-11 victims if you vote against it it would be politically deadly to oppose. So it passes overwhelmingly and, and no, you know, everybody has sympathy for the 9-11 families. That's not, that's not the argument. And so that's the situation they were in. And so they blew it through the house. We're going to have to see now if it actually, what, what the Senate does with it, because the Senate hasn't acted. They're now in recess. They won't come back till the lame duck session. And we'll have to see if the Senate takes it up and how they handle it. Yeah, if I had a guess, they'll roll, they'll roll it into the omnibus and they'll deal with it as some sort of a broader negotiation involving 
the World Trade Center Health Fund as well. That'd be my guess. And we'll see, you know, they have to figure out offsets. Uh, yeah, it's got a lot of support. I mean, you know, there's going to be plenty of support for it in the Senate too. And, you know, it, <laughs> in your article, David, from a couple of years ago, Lindsey Graham, one of the, one of the kind of the architects of the original legislation that cracked open the door to more of these 9-11 families getting access to this fund. I remember you asked him, you interviewed him and said, um, Senator, hey, Senator Graham, do you think Iran was liable in, in this? And, and he said, he said, well, not particularly, but we're going to just do this anyway. <laughs> because I mean, the 9-11, the 9-11 families are just are so politically potent. And uh, it's just, you know, how, how do you, how do you say to the, the children, the spouses of these people who, you know, watch the towers demolished uh, on 9-11, how do you ultimately say to them, you don't deserve this additional funding? You know, you say, oh, you got money 20 years ago, so you shouldn't get any money now. It's just a tough argument to make, you know, for those people, even though things are, you know, maybe it's not as working as it was intended initially. I mean, you know. 911 right. commission said Iran's not responsible. Yeah, Graham, Graham said he Graham said he didn't really buy the court ruling but he considered it a form of rough justice is what he the way Rough he justice. Exactly. That's what this is. This is rough justice. David and you were on top of this from the very beginning and I again I encourage everybody to read that article. And we'll we'll make it we'll make it widely available. We'll see what the Senate does with this if anything. Um, but that's all the time we have for now. Thank you again, Peter Cohn, Tax and Budget Editor at CQ Roll Call, for joining me. Great to see you again, David. Thanks a lot. And we'll be back next time. 